Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. People just try cases going chronologically. And that makes sense intuitively because, hey, that's how we live our life. We're born, we live, we die. But I would tell you that the way we live our lives chronologically has absolutely nothing to do with how we should prepare and try cases. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Steve. I had my um, I got sworn in to the uh, Southern District of Georgia today. I don't know if you if you That's, knew I was doing that. But I, I, I not only did I hear you were going to get sworn into the Southern District of Georgia, but I heard that the uh, that the judge might have a couple of special requirements for you. Wait, what? You, oh, that didn't happen? No. Well, Jeff, you guys were going to haze me, weren't you? <laughs> well, Jeff told me that he had, he had, uh, he, he had asked our uh, judge, uh, the great Judge Baker, uh, to uh, ask you to recite the Southern District motto uh, <laughs> and then just see what you did. <laughs> no, he didn't. But it was, I, I, they did a really great job. I just want to, the reason I mentioned it is I wanted to give them a quick shout out because this has got to be a very strange way and not an easy way for court staff to have to do this. But they... You know, so there were probably like 60 lawyers getting sworn in. He would have had to embarrass me in front of. Um, it was just maybe why he didn't do it. But they right. did a great job and they did a whole program. You know, we had remarks and and it was nice. Everything but the reception after. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was cool. Well, well that's great. Congratulations to the uh, coming into the Southern District of Georgia. And I assume so when, when I got sworn into the Southern District, uh, you still got assigned criminal cases uh, to do for the Southern district. So, uh, do you know whether or not you're going to get it's, a, get a bank robbery or something? That doesn't happen, um, automatically or involuntarily anymore, but it is still strongly encouraged to sign up. So <laughs> right. we'll see. Exactly. <laughs> they're, they're always fun, especially if, if what you do is primarily civil work like we do, and then you get into a federal either conspiracy trial or bank robbery case, and then you got to figure out, <laughs> right. oh, wow, what, what do I got to do here? <laughs> right. And like for me, like I have to figure out what an arraignment is because I didn't even take criminal uh, <laughs> Whatever. I've got a lot to learn. I'm looking forward yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, that, that is enough about Yvonne becoming part of the Southern District of Georgia. Let's uh, introduce our, our guest. We have a, a fantastic guest, fantastic trial lawyer from Providence, Rhode Island. I want to welcome Mark Mandel. Mark, how are you doing today? Well, doing fine, Steve. Uh, happy to be here with you guys. Uh, it, look forward to it. It's really, really good to have you on, and uh, and we got a lot to talk about um, because not only was this case that we're that we're going to talk about, you know, very interesting and very difficult, but uh, but enough information that you uh, that you filled up pretty much an entire book with uh, with talking about this case. So we know we have a lot to talk about <laughs> talk about. But uh, but Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. My pleasure. So, so uh, let me just tell our listeners a little bit about you. First, Mark is a uh, is the senior and founding partner of uh, Mandel, Beauclair, and Mandel in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, and uh, Mark is uh, is privileged to uh, practice law with his wife Yvette Beauclair and his son Zach Mandel, as well as several other uh, very good lawyers. But uh, so you uh, your law firm is. Uh, is uh, a family affair, I guess we'll say. And Absolutely. this case was a family affair. Uh, it is, and it was, for sure. <laughs> right. for sure. 
Um, let me tell everybody a little, and, and uh, before I forget, if you want to look up Mark uh, or anybody else in his law firm, go to mbmjustice.com. That's mbmjustice.com. So Mark, uh, I'm just going to give a little bit about your background and uh, try not to make you blush because you have uh, a lot of accomplishments in your background and won a lot of awards as well as a lot of uh, just really great cases. And I think I read somewhere that, uh, that there is no lawyer in Rhode Island who has more uh, seven and eight figure verdicts than Mark Mandel. I'm pretty sure I read that. And then um, and Mark is a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, uh, which is a very prestigious group. Uh, he's a member, a fellow in the American College of Trial Lawyers. Uh, he's double board certified by the National uh, Board of Trial Advocacy and the American Board of Professional Liability Attorneys. Um, he is the author of two uh, really great books about uh, trial strategy and, and about trial work. Called one, the first one is called Case Framing, and then the second one is called Advanced Case Framing by the uh, AAJ Press. And, uh, and in fact, this case that we're going to be talking about uh, was uh, featured prominently in the second book of Advanced Case Framing. Um, but uh, Mark has also um, been in just a multitude of leadership roles. He was the president of the Rhode Island Trial Lawyers, president of the Rhode Island Bar Association. I think maybe the only lawyer who's ever done that. Uh, he was the president of ATLA when it was known as ATLA. Now it's the American Association of Justice uh, and has been named in um, uh, best lawyers, super lawyers multiple times. Uh, was named Lawyer of the Year by the Melvin Belli Society and, um, and is a graduate from the Georgetown University Law Center and was a clerk for um, federal judge Edward Day before he, uh, before he went into practice. So uh, we're really, uh, really, uh, and, and, and I should say, Mark, that's, that's just some of your accomplishments. I just, uh, <laughs> we couldn't take up the whole show reading them all. <laughs> that's very kind. Thank you. Sir. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, let's talk about this case. Um, so, I'm going to give a little rundown, and then, uh, and then, and then, if I screw up, Mark is going to uh, is going to tell me where I, I messed up. But um, basically, th this case, the name of the case is Alyssa Moulton versus uh, UTGR Inc. Uh, DBA as uh, Twin River Casino. Um, Royal uh, Liquors and Alexander Arango. There's some other defendants in there, but at, at trial, those were the main three, and, pri and primarily the case involved Twin River Casino and, and Mr. Arango. Um, and and I, one thing I, I don't want to forget to talk about is that you also had a claim for, uh, for Ms. Moulton's son um, and, and also Mr. Arango's son. And that's, that's one of the dynamics that we're going to talk about in this case. Um, but this is what we would uh, typically call it a, a dram shop case. It was um, involved uh, uh, Mr. Arango, who was under 21 years old, 18 years old, um, getting visibly intoxicated uh, at the Twin River Casino. Um, and uh, then le he left the casino. He had uh, um, Alyssa was a, uh, a rear seat passenger behind him uh, on the driver's side. And then there were two other passengers. Um, uh, I'm just going to call them by their first names, Jose and mm -hmm. Christina, uh, who were in the front seat and in and, and rear seat. And as he left the casino um, in a Toyota Camry, about five to 10 minutes later, lost control on, I believe it was uh, 146, if I'm getting that right. Um, 
lost control and uh, hit the median. Uh, the the vehicle flipped over. Uh, both Alyssa and Christina were ejected from the vehicle, and the and the vehicle actually came to rest on top of Alyssa, and she was rendered a um, paraplegic from the chest down. Um, and so um, she then brought a suit uh, represented by by Mark and his uh, his wife Yvette and his son Zach. Uh, at trial against Twin River Casino, and um, uh, as well as uh, Royal Liquors, which was a one of the things we're going to talk about in this case is that they had they had been drinking before they went to the casino, and Royal Liquors, where they were able to, to obtain uh, some vodka and um, and w- the other thing I didn't mention is that not only was uh, Mr. Arango under twenty one, but so was Alyssa. So was Jose and so was Christina. They were all under 21 and three of them were only 18 years old. Uh, and and, and, and uh, you successfully uh, got a verdict of, and I had a little bit of trouble doing the, the math, but I want to say it was 22.6 million or 23 million, somewhere right around there. But, um, but a, a, a tremendous verdict, a, fa- a fantastic verdict. Um, uh, in, in this case. And um, I guess the first place where I'll start with you, Mark, is that there were a, a number of hurdles in this case, a, a number of difficulties. Uh, it, not only, you know, the fact that you had your client who had been drinking and who had been drinking with um, um, Mr. Arango, who was her uh, boyfriend, um, but that she willingly got into a vehicle with somebody who was visibly intoxicated, which, you know, is always difficult for a dram shop case. But that's just sort of the the start of it, because I think one of the big hurdles that you faced was proving that he uh, had been served at the casino and, you know, that he was visibly intoxicated when he left the the, uh, the casino and, and what they could have done about that. So I know that was a lot, but I, I, I figured we'd start, Mark, just by talking about some of the uh, the defenses or, or hurdles you had to overcome in this case. And there there were uh, a lot and, and you all did a fantastic uh, job. And then and then, of course, we can talk about um, some of the tips you have in your book about how you sequence uh, uh, evidence, how you sequence your your witnesses, and then how you uh, frame your case and, and some of your, um, w- you know, how you did that in this case. Okay. Um, well, let me just start by saying, uh, you know, I've been practicing 45 years. I've tried a lot of cases, and this was by far the most difficult case I've ever tried on the facts. Uh, it, trial lasted five weeks. Uh, started the end of September 2016 and ended just before the election uh, that we ended up with Trump. So um, the day, uh, well, when I first got the case, uh, my closest friends asked me if I was crazy for taking the case based on the facts. Um, I took it uh, because I met Alyssa and really liked her and a very dear friend of mine, referred it to me and um, asked me for help. So, you know, we've all taken cases that afterwards we wondered about because someone that we care about asked us to help. Yeah. So, um, so when I, so what, one of the first, well, there were more problems than, um, you know, we spent one whole week on motions and limine 
and four to five days on voir dire. Uh, and the reason why was there were so many difficult issues in this case, difficult for us. <clears throat> um, the insurance company was AIG. And so they're tough, obviously. And it was a no offer case. So the, when um, the most difficult problem in the case, uh, it's, it's sort of a, going on a ledge to say there was one most difficult problem, but mm -hmm. was that uh, there were four young teenagers uh, in a car, uh, but before they went to my client's apartment, and uh, it was Alyssa and her boyfriend, Alex, and they had started dating when they were 13. She was 13. Oh, wow. He was too. He's a little older, but the same year. And um, they had a child together. Uh, at the time, the child was uh, a year and 11 months old. <clears throat> His name was Aiden. So they got together at Alyssa's apartment, and uh, Alex drank six ounces of vodka there. Uh, Jose didn't drink anything and uh, should have been the one driving, but right. he didn't drive. It was Alex's mother's car. So Alex had six ounces of vodka. Alyssa had one drink and Christina, I think she had a drink too. So they go to uh, the, the casino and uh, Alex drove and they get there about 10 o'clock. And that became an issue later when the defense during trial, because our case was going so well, tried to say they actually got there later than that at 11 o'clock um, because we had some proof there were two drinks that Alex claimed he drank. They were in a record from 1030 to 11. So they wanted to be able to say the kids got there at 11 after those drinks were served. So right. it couldn't have been him. But the biggest problem we had in the case was that uh, right after the crash, and you're right, Steve, it was five minutes after they left the casino, one car crash about three or four miles from the casino. Alex and Alyssa were in a, a, a violent fight, not physically, but you know, straight, a really strong fight. And he kept turning around and looking at her, going 90 miles an hour, took his hands off the wheel. They were yelling at each other. And he just lost control. Car flipped. Alyssa did not have a seatbelt on, which was a problem. Got thrown out. The car landed right on top of her. Mm. And uh, so she's paralyzed. So shortly after that, Jose gave a statement to the state police. 146 is a state highway just north of Providence. And he thought he was trying to help Alex. And he told the state police, and it's transcribed, uh, that Alex did not drink at the casino. Uh, Christina also gave a statement. Uh, she didn't give a statement to the state police, but she later gave a statement in which she said she was with Alex all night and he didn't drink at the casino. Alex, about 10, 11 hours after the crash, gave a statement to the state police and he said he didn't drink at the casino. And Alyssa, the only other possible witness, said that she didn't see Alex drink but that she and Christina had taken a walk around the casino for about a half hour. And that was when Alex said he drank when she left. So we had no 
eyewitnesses to say he drank, and three of the people with him, two said he didn't, he said he didn't, and Alyssa said she didn't know. So that was <laughs> that was a huge <laughs> obstacle. A, a little difficult, yeah. <laughs> so ultimately, what happened with that, though, is uh, that they were 18. So as to Alex, we said, he was scared. He saw his girlfriend underneath the car. He loved her, you know, as he did at 18. He's still with her, by the way, which is a nice thing. He didn't leave after the money came in. Um, but, and he turned out, he's a good guy. Uh, but he was petrified. He saw his girlfriend paralyzed. They took him off right away and arrested him. He thought he was going to get in huge trouble. And uh, so he lied. You know, people do, unfortunately, but he did. Um, Jose, um, interesting guy, wonderful guy, young Hispanic guy. And he said that um, at trial, and he almost didn't come to trial, at the last second, we got him to come. And his testimony was, well, you know, I was trying to protect the friend. I thought he was going to get in trouble if he said he drank at the casino. And he said, I grew up in a tough area of Providence. And where I grew up, you didn't snitch on a friend. It was very right. believable. Yeah. But that was at trial. He, he didn't say that, uh, you know, otherwise before. He did in his deposition a little bit, but not so poignantly. Um, Christina was hard. She was a hard person. Let me just be nice and say it that way, okay? And um, she and Alyssa were very close friends. But she was also injured in this crash, and she really disliked Alex. Alex, by the way, went to jail for a year and a half for this. But Alyssa loved Alex. And when and so she stayed with him. And that infuriated Christina that Alyssa chose Alex over her. So Christina, actually, when we filed a petition in bankruptcy, which I can talk about just for a second. Right. Yeah, I forgot that, yeah. that hurdle that you also had, which was the bankruptcy, but yeah. Right, so Twin River was in bankruptcy when this happened. In fact, the plan of distribution that was, dis was approved and discharged other claims that were no were discharged the day of this crash. I think it was actually it was two months after this crash when Alyssa was still in the ICU fighting for her, you know, she was paralyzed fighting for her life. So um, Christina, when there was some publicity about the lawsuit here in our state newspaper, actually called Twin River. She was so angry at Alex and Alyssa and left a voice message that the case was a fraud. She was there and she was with them all night and he didn't drink. Well, who does that? Right. But she right. did. So Twin River sent out an investigator to her house and he took a statement that she was with him all night, et cetera, et cetera, five to 10 feet away. She could see he didn't drink. And the way we got around that was, um, like I said, she was hard. And in her deposition, they took it. She said those things. And, uh, and then I, I cross-examined her, and I was gentlemanly, but I pushed every trigger she had. And she uh, eventually got very sarcastic, and very sarcastic at Alex's lawyer. And at one point, the, 
I think it was this lawyer, a woman asked her at the deposition, how'd you get back from the area within eyesight, but you know, whatever it was, how'd you get back? And she says, well, I walked back. And then she sarcastically said, and I brought this out of trial. What was I gonna do, crawl back? That's the kind of person she came across as and was. And at one point when I was asking her a question, she actually pled the Fifth Amendment in her deposition. I mean, things like that. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digital law marketing Com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice. It's such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day. And they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. At best for us, Alex lied to the state police when he said he didn't drink. Alex also, when he got sentenced, lied to the sentencing judge, a really top-rate trial judge here, because Christina said that Alex had sent her a text ridiculing the way she looks because of the scars from the accident. And Alex denied it. The judge told uh, Christina to go get her cell phone. It was there. So all of that came out, by the way. All of this, everything I just told you came out. In the in the civil in your civil case in my civil case oh there was God. no criminal trial he just pled guilty and went right. to jail. Okay. What happened was when he got out of jail he came back and he confessed to Alyssa that he had drank he had two drinks there. There were no receipts or record of a sale. It was paid for in cash. So a lot of focus groups that we did the people said when you asked when we asked. How would you make a determination whether he got served or not? They said, well, number one thing they said was, are there receipts? Right. It was in cash. There were no receipts. Uh, Twin River had this powerful narrative. We have hundreds and hundreds of cameras. We have security guards everywhere. A beverage server would not serve somebody who looked this young and risked their job. Well, that was hogwash. And 
what we proved was they only looked at the machines primarily with these cameras to see if somebody vandalized them or in the cash centers. They didn't look to see who got served. They didn't want to know who got served mm -hmm. other than the receipts. And there were only two guards in this whole section of the casino. So that was sort of thrown out too. But so that was, those were big issues. Now, in addition to Alex's lack of credibility, uh, those two things, what happened was when they left the casino, before they left the parking lot, Alex got out of the car. He and Alyssa were in a fight already because he was angry that she walked away for 30 minutes. He thought she was going to leave him and leave with somebody else. Right. And he just lost it. He lost it. He was, you know, so uh, he was hot blooded for sure about that. But he got out of the car and he got out because he was so angry. And there was no question about that. In his deposition, they asked him why he got out of the car and he walked down the road some. He said because he was looking for his wallet. Well, it was not, I mean, not even conceivably real, but he got caught in that misstatement of truth too. You alluded to this, Steve. Um, it became clear to me early in this preparation that if I couldn't somehow deal with the Alex-Alyssa relationship, there was no way we're going in this case. Right. It was brutal, this issue. They had a child together before the crash. They had a second child paralyzed. She gave birth to a child, which was news to me. I'd never heard of that happening. I've been doing this many years. And I went and talked to this wonderful, relatively young uh, rehab MD at Spalding Rehab Center right outside of Boston. And I asked her about that because she's the one who encouraged Alyssa to get pregnant. And I said, I, this is all new to me. Can you tell me why? And she said, well, the pregnancy itself won't hurt Alyssa. It won't kill her. She, you know, she medically, physically can do it. And it gives the women that we encourage to do this a reason to fight to live a fight to improve for their baby. Yeah. So, so she had this child, Axel was his name, who came to trial, you know, who was alive at the time of trial. So they lived together. They had two kids together. And Alyssa's paralyzed. And I knew that a jury would either say, he's going to leave when the money comes in, so we're not going to give it to her. Or what the heck is she still doing with this guy? Yeah. He didn't. He didn't have a job. We, you know, we encouraged him to get a job because he was living off her um, Medicaid payments. You know, so he wasn't even working. In other words, the argument was he, he caused this to happen, her paralysis, but wasn't even supporting her. So finally, he did get a job. But what if Alyssa, one, he, what we couldn't do anything about is the argument, well, he's going to benefit from any money. If there's a van, he's going to be able to use it. If there's a, a beautiful TV, he's going to be able to watch it. So we couldn't deal with that. That's just true. But we knew that we had to make it so he couldn't get any of the money in his pocket. Yeah. Either for Alyssa or for Aiden, or if she gave any money to Axel. So we knew we had to neutralize that. And um, so what we did was I researched the heck out of this and I couldn't find anywhere in the United States where this had been addressed. The closest I could come was a court rule in Oregon that was different, but at least it was similar. But what I determined was 
we had to disinherit Alex. Now, how do you do that? Well, so that it, so that a jury would believe it was an effect, not just for the trial and then be reversed in disinheritance. And so what I advocated, and I was I was nervous. I was this was probably what the most difficult decision I made, and there were many in the case. But I set up a Medicaid special needs trust before trial, a year before trial. Now you may say, well, there's nothing unusual about that. We do that all the time. Well, I bet you do, but I don't know that you've ever done it before a case is settled. <laughs> Usually you set up these Medicaid special needs trusts after a settlement. The reason why is because the beneficiary, first of all, Medicaid is not gonna generally approve a pig and a poke, they don't know. But when you set up, and this is what made me so nervous, when you set up a Medicaid special needs trust, the beneficiary has absolutely no control as to how the money's spent. It's got to be spent on the beneficiary medical needs and stuff to lessen what Medicaid has to pay for that. But the, so what I was asking Alyssa to do, and this was concerning, I was asking her a year before trial to give up all of her rights to any recovery, that all of it would go into the Medicaid Special Needs Trust. And so you may say, okay, so, well, the thing that made me so nervous was I had no guarantee that I was ever going to get the trust before the jury so they would know Alex could never get money. Because why should that be before a jury? So I was asking, and so in the trust, what we did was we said Alex could never get any of the money. Alex could never be a trustee. And if Alyssa died before her boys were 25, either one of them, then that their money, if there was any allocated to them, like Aiden's money, or if somehow Alec, Alyssa was able to give Axel some money, um, it would go in a trust until they were 25. So Alex could never get that money. Now, the reason we were able to have Aiden as a plaintiff and not Axel is because Aiden was alive at the time of the crash, right. and you can't be born into a case, right? right? You have to have a claim at the time the action accrues. You can't be born into it. So Alyssa trusted me, and I had talked to her ongoing about this difficulty in their relationship. They lived together during the preparation. I told Alyssa, I can never come to the house if Alex is there. So whenever I went to her house, which was not infrequent, Alex left. Partly, I couldn't do it because I didn't want to be, have anybody be able to say I did it. But also, Alex was represented by a very fine lawyer. And uh, so we didn't do it. So so after Alyssa agreed to this, and we, we, it took us, I hired a, because, you know, I know a little probate, but I'm not a probate lawyer, so we hired a probate firm to do it. And the first one didn't work out for a number of reasons. So I had to hire a second firm, and they did a great job. So then I filed a motion, because I, I can't file a motion to make it an exhibit before trial. So I had to find a way that I could make it an exhibit at trial. So Alyssa's mother had um, issues. So she was actually raised from her, a young age by her grandparents, two beautiful human beings. They basically adopted her uh, as their own child. 
so I filed the motion to make the grandparents, and by the way, in the trust, they were co-trustees of the trust along with a bank from Chicago. Right. And, you know, as banks are, they wouldn't let me, uh, they wouldn't be involved until there was money in the trust that they could make money off. So, but I didn't want them to be a plaintiff anyway. Uh, so I, asked, I filed a motion to make the grandparents co-plaintiffs and, and because, in their capacity as co-trustee. So the defense, there was a law, two lawyers from Boston came down to show the uh, country lawyers here in Providence how to try cases. And uh, they vociferously objected. We had several hearings on it. And my argument to the judge, and one thing I would offer as a tidbit, a lesson, <clears throat> is over the last 10 years, last you know, 10 years of my practice, I have found the beauty of rule one of the rules of civil procedure and rule 102 of the rules of evidence, the rule, our state, federal rules of evidence and the state rules. <clears throat> because everybody talks about expeditious handling of cases, you know, uh, not wasting time, but those rules both say, rule one says every rule of civil procedure has to be interpreted so that there's a just result. Rule 102 of the rules of evidence say all rules of evidence have to be interpreted, among other things, to accomplish a just determination of the case. Just, what is just is a matter of public policy. I cite rule one on a lot of motions and eliminate arguments. And I'm not, I'm only saying this as a fact so that maybe yeah. people will consider using it. I have never lost an argument that I used rule one in. All right, and I've been doing it for 10 years. I'm talking hundreds of arguments, all right? I will lose one for sure, but I haven't yet because in their hearts, almost all judges, I, I wish I could say all judges, almost all judges want to do justice, right? Right. So I argued to the judge, look, every jury I've ever had has wondered where the money's going to go, how it's going to be spent. If I can't do this judge, I will never get a fair trial. My client will never get a fair trial for a reason that it should have no bearing on the result in the case, where the money's gonna go. It's irrelevant where it goes, but it's very important to a jury. God bless this judge, he granted my motion. And since that motion was granted, I was able to introduce the exhibit that explained why the grandparents were plaintiffs. And then I argued in closing argument, you don't have to worry about Alex to getting this money, being overbearing at home. I cannot tell you honestly that he's not gonna be able to watch the TV or drive the van, but he won't ever get a penny in his pocket. He'll never be a trustee and he'll never get the boy's money. If at 25, they wanna give him some fine, they're 25. You can't keep it to him from them forever. That single-handedly changed the entire gestalt of this case. Yeah, It was yeah. amazing because what it did was it took him out. So. What I did was at trial, my argument for Alex and everything he did wrong, there were questions that he had abused Alyssa before. We kept that out in a motion and eliminated. He was never convicted of it, all right? We kept out, they tried to say he was hot tempered, et cetera, and they used all sorts of arguments. We kept all of that out in motions and eliminated because it was marginally relevant, if at all, and hugely prejudicial. So, as a result of getting Alex out of this equation 
it minimized his lying. It minimized all the other issues they possibly could have raised. So, you know, look, I've talked for a few minutes. There are five to 10 other equally difficult issues, maybe right. just slightly less difficult. I'm happy to talk about them, and I'm happy to have you take over again. Well, no, I, I, I mean, I had written down to talk to you about the, you know, setting up the trust because uh, we, we've actually done that before, and we, we had a case uh, uh, back that I tried in 2011 that um, where we had a brain damaged child, and the father who was driving the vehicle was at least somewhat at fault for the collision, even though we, we this is a case against the post office. And um, and the and both the mother and father had questionable backgrounds, uh, a little bit of criminal history. So we were concerned about um, the jury thinking about where the money was going to go. Um, and, uh, and 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 I guess I should say this was a Federal Tort Claims Act case, but the judge had actually impaneled a, an, an advisory jury for the fact question about what happened, and then and then. And then he entered the verdict. Uh, I mean, entered the judgment. But, um, but we were worried that what the what the what they everybody was going to think about where the money was going to go. So we had done uh, something similar, not quite the same as what you did, but it but it was you know we we got a, a well respected lawyer who did tr had had done a number of trusts, and she was the the trustee and the the conservator, and um, and you know and and basically the same thing. Be able to talk about that you know this whatever the jury did, whatever the judge did was going to be completely for the benefit of the child and, you know, for his care. Uh, and it was, uh, it was, it, it's very effective. And I think it's a, I think it's a, an under, underutilized tool in a lot of cases um, because there is a, a, a very legitimate purpose for doing it. And, um, and, uh, and, and you're exactly right, Mark, that it, that, I love the using the rule one and rule uh, and and rule one hundred two because um, there's and I can't remember what the rule is now that we're talking, but there's also another rule when it comes to discovery that the you know all, the purpose of all discovery is to discover the truth, and so I always I like to mention that to judges when we're in motions to compel and discovery fights that you know look at the at the end of the day we're just supposed to learn the sure. truth behind everything. Um, well, what I also really like about about you know Mark you doing this in your case. Um, and even though you only sort of had a jury in your case, Steve, so it was a little bit different, but I think especially when you've got a jury who's rendering the verdict, it accomplishes the sort of the initial purpose of, you know, that they're going to be thinking about where the money goes and you know, you might have, um, an issue with that about how they're going to perceive that. And so you want them to know, but I also think it accomplishes the purpose of showing that you get them, you know, that like, you know, they're going to be worried about this and that's why you want them to know this. And, and so sort of like gets them on your side, you know, that, 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 you know, they're going to be concerned about this for good reasons. And so you've taken care of it and you're going to tell them about it. Right. And, and, you know, when you're rendering, I mean, it is a totally irrelevant uh, consideration about what, where the money's going to go. I mean, yeah. you're not supposed to think about that. No, everybody does. Client, what are you going to do with the money? And because they would say, well, I'm going to give it to a charity. I mean, right. so it's self-serving. Right. But what we did, so I use case framing in this trial. Yeah. And it works. Um, you know, my friends around the country are using it, you know, 
and I talk to people all the time. I probably have talked to four or 500 lawyers over the last five or six years about how to prepare and use case framing. And so that one thing is you have to pay attention to everything. So one thing I did to over, we did to overcome Alex's issue is that we argued he's 18. He was a kid. And when I think back to stuff I did when I was 18, that's right. You know, I'm happy I'm alive. I mean, you know, we just different things, but to keep that real, one of the roles my son Zachary had was Zach was in his, you know, might've been about 30, the 31 or something. So young, you know, relatively. And, uh, at trial, um, I've learned, you know, like, um, I've learned when to let somebody else do something. You know what I mean? It's important. And uh, so Zach, at trial, did the examination of Alex. I wanted to, to say a young examination. And they related really well together. And it brought out a niceness in Alex, like, expressing how much he did love Alyssa genuinely. I, and Zach did a great job. So that sort of helped. In other words, we just can't argue it. We've got to create the entire environment that uh, fosters your proof and yeah. stuff. So there were issues with Alyssa too. We had huge comparative negligence issues with Alyssa. She had a drink. She stayed with Alex, at, you know, um, after the crash. She got into the car with him at the casino. And then when he got out angry, he came back in. She let him drive again. Jose had not had any drinks. Yeah. In Rhode Island, not only do we have dram shop recovery, but our dram shop statute, very importantly, maintains common law negligence as a potential claim. Many states don't have that. So one thing you can do with a, com a dram shop, as you know, it's only a liability at the time of service of alcohol. Common law negligence is, did the bartender exercise reasonable care? Did the casino, in letting the person leave visibly intoxicated, exercise reasonable care? So it gives you that additional time. The problem is, and so the strongest case usually with the common law negligence is because the person drinks and drinks and gets more and more drunk is when they let them walk out, even though there are guards at the entrance, right? Or at least one, because he had his back to people leaving he was only concerned that people coming in weren't drunk. But when we focused on how drunk he was when he left, we were also focusing on Alyssa's negligence to get in the car with him. And so it became a problem right. for, for her comparative negligence. So, you know, she made iffy choices on healthcare. She missed appointments. She had, and, and you know, it, so what, right? Really? But people are weird and they have weird reactions to things. So after the uh, accident paralyzed, Alyssa had breast augmentation surgery. So what? But when I first heard it, I said, oh my God, you know, how are people going to react to that? And you know what, you know, and what Alyssa testified to about it is that, look, she's paralyzed. Mm -hmm. Why is she still with Alex? You know what? So what? She loves him. She didn't have a queue of guys waiting to come in paralyzed and date her. You know, her philosophy was, or her view was, she wanted to fix things. She was a problem solver. And so when you frame breast augmentation surgery as her honest insecurity and attempting to fix what she thought was a defect in herself with all the other problems she has, 
it almost becomes a positive about her nature because it allowed her to continue fighting. So, you know, she got in this fight with Alex in the car. So her comparative negligence were problems too. You know? And the fact that she's not wearing her seatbelt, and um, right. you know that's you know it, it, when I when I read the you know just the initial sort of rundown, I mean it, this would have been a very difficult case, and, and I and I guess you know what what I really uh, like you to talk about, Mark, if you could, is you know it, you you talked about case framing and you talked about sequencing, and and how you really use that in this case in order to overcome. I, I mean, I. I you know, these issues you've already talked about, but especially this issue of, uh, you know, uh, what the casino did wrong and where, and, and, um, how you were able to uh, bring the jury around that they actually, that he did drink there and that they did serve him and, and therefore overserved him and, and caused him to become visibly intoxicated. Cause I thought the way you all did that was, was really, uh, I mean, creative and, and just very good in this case as far as coming up with the evidence. It's part of how I believe case framing works, right? Uh, everything should be framed and everything should be sequenced the right way because you could frame things brilliantly and sequence it not brilliantly and lose easily, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, what happened is uh, I couldn't, with the way you, I was the way everybody I know tries cases, including the way I used to try cases. And it's just intuitive that you would do this is that people try cases chronologically. You know, you start with the accident and then you go to the hospital when maybe there's malpractice there, maybe the negligence is in. People just try cases going chronologically. And that makes sense intuitively because hey, that's how we live our life. We're born, we live, we die. But I would tell you, suggest to you, that the way we live our lives chronologically has absolutely nothing to do with how we should prepare and try cases. So I've, I have, um, you've read the book, so you know that I believe in what I call I just can't get over issues, good and bad for us. Right. These bad ones I was talking about. So it isn't just, and, and this is the distinction, it's not just the good arguments for you and the bad arguments. It's the good arguments that a jury just won't be able to get over. It's the bad arguments that a jury just won't be able to get over. It's what's the difference? Because that I just can't get over issue that's good for you is geometrically indescribably more powerful than a good issue. Because the jury just won't be able to get over it. That's the key. It strikes such a deep responsive chord in each juror, what a jury can't get over will decide how it votes in a case. So the best I just can't get over issue we had in our case, I call it the key I can't get over issue, good for us. And there weren't many initially. Mm -hmm. I spent years trying to overcome the defense narrative and the defense I can't, what I call I can't get over issues. And by the time of trial, I was, we were pretty far on our way destroying some of those. And then trial did it. So there were none left at the end of the trial, which is your goal in every case, right? But the way we did it was, I realized that the best issue for us in the case was the issue of proximity. That is proximity between the crash site and the casino. 
because he was so visibly drunk at the crash site, he had to be visibly drunk inside the casino. It doesn't happen in three minutes. It doesn't happen in five minutes, the way he was drunk at the crash site. If I could get him drunk inside the casino, that was that opened up my ability. It just, look, here's, here's a lesson I've learned, okay? If you have a bad issue for you, no matter how bad it is, I used to want to destroy every adverse witness and every bad issue. The problem with that is you can't do that. Yeah. I remember a trial, I destroyed seven or eight witnesses, not the last one. I did a nice job on the last one, but didn't destroy that person. You know what the jury told me after that trial? They were impressed with that last person. They didn't even know why they were impressed with that last person, but it's because that last witness looked so much better than their other witnesses mm -hmm. that there must have been some value to it. Mm -hmm. And so if you could do it, you're a better lawyer than me, and, but I don't know that people can do that. So what do you do with bad issues? You don't need to destroy them. You need to just dent them, stop them, or slow them down. Because you know what happens if you do that? Your proof can now envelop the courtroom. That big time bad issue, terrible bad issue for us, and I just can't get over issue bad for us, can keep the lid on a lot of good stuff coming into that car. You slow it down, they can't stop it, all right? So the key issue good for us was that proximity. Once we were able to create that, and, and I'll tell you how we did it, it allowed us what, what came over and developed that courtroom, in part, was the science, which was on our side. But in the focus groups, we weren't able to have the science be dented. The focus groups, everyone we did, the jurors basically ignored the science and said we had a terrible case, da, 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 whatever. There were tidbits of good things. Once I took Alex out of it and did the other stuff we did at the trial, it became a different case. So what I did was, since I believe that every part of a trial, opening statement, every single witness, you're directing your cross on every witness. You have to start with the best issue for you in the case. The key, I can't get over issue, good for you. That's how I start my openings. That's how I start every single witness. You may say, you can't do that. I'll tell you, you can. I've been doing it for years now, all right? So every single witness in that case and my opening, I started at the crash site with how drunk he was. Now, it did focus on Alex, but I made them own Alex because they served an 18-year-older. So the bottom line is, I couldn't start in Alyssa's apartment. I couldn't start in the casino. I literally started after the crash. And I tried this case chronologically backwards. I, I don't remember ever doing that before. The entire case was tried chronologically backwards. At first, it was felt awkward. And then it became second nature. So why did I do that? Why do I advocate you start with the best issue for you first? And why did I start chronologically backwards? Because I believe that when a jury is listening to a trial, they're absorbing consciously and unconsciously everything that's happening. And my belief is maybe I'm wrong. I don't think I am, but maybe I am is that when the jury begins deliberation, they start with what they have now become comfortable with, 
which has now been something they've seen throughout the trial. I believe they started at the crash site and went chronologically backwards. And then when that happens, we win. So the key, everything's got to be disciplined and coordinated though, use, to me, using case framing. So our exhibits, our most important exhibit was the police report, talked about how drunk he was. And then after that, he went to a hospital. Eight hours after the crash, they said he was a fall risk due to alcohol in the hospital. So when you hear that on a jury, you're thinking, oh my God. Now, he drank vodka at Alyssa's house. He drank Captain Morgan and Coke, a fruit flavored thing. I'm not a drinker, so I mean, I mean, I will have a drink, but I'm not a big drinker. So I didn't even know what was in it. I knew rum, but I didn't know what else. So, <laughs> but at the scene of the crash, you have to pay attention to everything and then you can't overstate anything, right? So at the crash, he had a, he was he, a huge smell of alcohol in his breath, part of the visible intoxication. I argued to a jury, I didn't argue it before, never mentioned at the trial, except I asked the beverage server this one question, so it came out of her mouth, so I could argue. I asked her, is vodka odorless? She said yes, and I never went back to it, let it go there. No, it was like buried in the trial, five-week trial. In closing argument, I said to the jury, she had vodka odorless. They're saying she, he was drunk, but it was odorless. It was a bad alcohol, six ounces, versus they said two small drinks there. Vodka is odorless. And two of the jurors looked at me and went, you're right, they started shaking their heads. Well, how did, she, how did he have a huge odor of alcohol on his breath if vodka is odorless if he didn't drink at the casino? And Captain Morgan and Coke is not odorless, but you can't overstate anything. So I said to them, so let me be honest with you. When alcohol decomposes, even vodka, it does have odor. So I'm mentioning that point to you about the odorless, but I'm suggesting you don't make too much of it. All right, so you have to let the truth come out. So we tried the case backwards. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. 
so yeah so what i forgot to tell our listeners is that um if you mention the great child's podcast when you call into legal technology services or write into them uh they will give you 10 percent off of your first job so mention the podcast great trials podcast and uh they will give you 10 percent off of your first job and again that is ltsatlanta.com legal technology services uh, give them a try one of the things that I liked about what you did, and and, and this is, and I I am a, a big proponent of you know your, uh, um, you know your sequencing of your um, of your evidence of your witnesses and how the jury hears the story. And we've talked about you know the concepts of primacy and recency and things like that, and you know what you hear first, what you hear most, and um, and how you and how you talk about it. But um, you know I, I liked how you you balanced your um, witnesses when you brought them out with the i think there was a good samaritan who had been on the scene who talked about how uh alex was intoxicated showing visible signs and then you brought out your scientist your toxicologist who then went through the science of everything which really made sense to me and and i've I've had a a number of dram shop cases but i had never really addressed it this way but when you explained uh about the the four phases of intoxication or of alcohol, how you, um, your body goes through alcohol, which was the, um, the absorption phase, then the distribution, then metabolism, and then excretion. And, and then link that up with the fact that they had done a, uh, a blood alcohol of Alex, like I think within an hour or so after the collision and then quickly thereafter and his blood alcohol dropped really fast. Like it went from a point close to a 0.09 to a 0.7, uh, 0.07. And, and um, your expert was able to explain that that only happens during the distribution phase. And that has to happen fairly early on after drinking, which, which so that, that linked up with your timing of when he was in the casino from the 1030 to 1130. But then, and then after that, you brought in the state trooper to bring it back to what the evidence was at scene. Then you brought your, your serve safe person, the person who talks about uh, what the casino should have done to make sure he didn't drink alcohol. And, and we're skipping over a, a lot of other evidence that you had from the, the beverage server who, who gave some really uh, damaging testimony for the casino about basically disregarding you know, safe practices and not worrying about whether or not somebody's intoxicated. Uh, and then the fact that she actually had on her receipt to Captain Morgan and, and Coke uh, um, drinks that she had made and she was serving his area. So I, all those things, I know I just kind of jammed packed a lot into it. Right. Yeah. But, but I, really, I really like how you tied the science in with the facts and, and balanced your witnesses so that you're kind of going from one to the other to the other and so the jury you know, keeps hearing the themes you wanted them to hear as far as the intoxication and the timing. Sure. Um, Mark, I wanted to, to ask, because you've mentioned it a couple times, the things that you learned by focusing the case, by, by doing focus groups, and you certainly had a lot of issues that you, in this case, as we've, we keep saying, I mean, you had a lot of issues to be concerned about in this case and how to handle them with the jury. And I'm wondering if there was anything special or unique you did, or even if it's your standard practice, if you could talk about how you conduct your focus groups to get the most out of them for a case sure, like this? Sure, it's a great question, Yvonne. Um, I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of focus groups since, God, I don't know, 1980s or something like that. 
um, I, every time I do it, I learn. It's amazing, you know? And uh, so what we do, um, and you know, we now do them ourselves. I used to use trial consultants and there are some great ones I've worked with, but I've been doing this so long that my wife and I, and Zach, our son, do them, you bet Zach and I do them ourselves. And so pretty much um, we'll do the first one. Um, one of us will be the plaintiff's lawyer, and one will be the defense lawyer, or maybe there are two defendants, you know, and other people in the firm will participate. And then we'll do a little questionnaire before, and then we'll, the person who does the plaintiff's lawyer will go, and then we'll do a questionnaire to ask what they heard, the three most important things, other things about the deliberation, uh, what the, the uh, presentation. And then the person for the defense goes, maybe both. And then um, I'll go out and we'll ask questions. And then they'll deliberate. And so that's how we do. It takes about four hours to do. And then the next focus group is based on what we learned in the first focus group. Okay. And then the next and the next and the next. Now, I think proximity, every time I've used it, it's been helpful as a, an important issue, except in a case I just had, and I couldn't understand it. It was a murder case, uh, university employee right immediately off the campus murdered my client's husband, my client, and also his wife was my client. He died, brutal murder. And it was right off campus, and it was right after he left. And I thought, oh, that's perfect. First focus group we did, I think we had like a 25% win rate. That's it. And then I realized I had to reframe the entire proof. And what I, what I knew was they had told this guy to leave seven times and never called the university police over an hour and a half. Now, I don't know how many times you guys have ever been in the presence of an employer telling an employee to leave. But I'm willing to guess that you've never seen it happen seven times in an hour and a half, and they don't do anything about it. Call the police to get out if it's that bad. So that became the key issue. So um, in this particular case, one of the things that was one of the biggest problems, and I mentioned it because I've got some ideas in the focus group about how to deal with it, was that the casino was building a new casino, a one or two in Rhode Island, in another city, a different city. And um, coincidentally, I'm sure, just happened to happen, that on the day I began voir dire, September 26, 2016, this month long or more, every day, massive on every form of media in Rhode Island, publicity campaign, touting what a wonderful place it was to work, the millions of dollars a new casino would bring into the state treasury, the, the, the thousands of new employees who would be hired in Rhode Island, how it would lessen taxes, you know, for, for the average person. Every single day, no matter how good we did in court, I had to go home and listen to that garbage on the radio, on TV. It was on, you know, what, Facebook, whatever, you know. And I said to myself, are you kidding me? I mean, it's like, so the reason I mention it is because there are cases that you go in and maybe you represent a Muslim or you represent somebody at that time 
who may not be popular, either as part of a group or individually, or, or it's a criminal case and your client's accused of pedophilia, whatever it is. You've got a client who's got lung cancer and they're a smoker. There are these larger than life issues and a publicity campaign like that is one. So I figured, I believe case framing overcomes all of that stuff. And I learned in that focus group some very helpful ways to use case framing, like try it backwards, right? No one said that in the focus group, but the only glimmer of hope I got was his condition at the crash site. Mm -hmm. That overcomes all these other embedded bad issues, including the most incredible glow you've ever seen for a casino of all places, right? So that's one thing I learned in the focus group. Yeah. Got it. So, so you really, you know, you'll do that first one kind of with what you've developed, but then you'll do subsequent, subsequent ones to kind of focus on the things that you uncover in each. Right. Cause there are always key bad issues. Yeah. You know, and you got to figure out how to deal with them, how to overcome them. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, one thing we haven't really talked about, uh, Mark, that, that I, I thought was powerful as far as your evidence goes is, is, um, the the serve safe manual uh that the that the casino was supposed to follow to follow and then your uh cross examinations of the corporate rep the beverage director and the um and the the uh, beverage server who who actually served can you just talk about that a little bit and how you use that manual yeah, because I, because at first you had mentioned that as being one of their key defenses was they have this great program to stop people from drinking or at the casino, and then you turned that around on them. Sure. Well, you know, I, um, you know, uh, there are shortcuts, they're called heuristics that you use to prove cases. Um, and because that's what people do in making decisions, they use these uh, mental shortcuts because information overload, you can't take in too much information. So when almost every decision we make, we do it like this, uh, but based on these heuristics. And one of them is called the anchoring heuristic. It's why when people go into a, 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 um, a store and things are on sale for 40% off, that's a heuristic. That's the anchoring heuristic. It's comparing the original price, which is grossly overinflated, versus the lower price, which is still probably way overinflated. And, but you think you're getting a deal. It's unconscious. There's an anchor. There's a comparison. Mm -hmm. So. What we do is we look for exhibits, among other things, like the Surf Safe Training Manual, to be a comparison standard as an anchor, by which to compare it to the conduct of the defendant or its employees so that juries can see, here's how you should do it, here's how they did it. And uh, it was, you know, the Surf Safe says you count drinks. The beverage serving question said you don't need to count drinks, you know? Serve safe said you don't serve somebody to the point of intoxication. She said you no problem. You could. In fact, you know, when I asked her how she well, actually Zach took her deposition. I asked her at trial this question, but he did a great job in her depot. Because I think do your job is a powerful overall case frame. We ask people in depositions, tell me about your job. How do you do your job? How do you view your job? Or whatever. And she said it was priceless. I mean, I hung this around her neck throughout that cross-examination. 
And I said it in closing. She said, my job? Somebody comes in, they wanted, and she said it like really a little sarcastically. Um, my job, somebody comes in, they want a drink, I serve them alcohol. They get drunk, I still did my job. In other words, sales, not safety. Mm-hmm. Right. Because she didn't think she needed to monitor them after, although Surf says you should, to see if they become drunk um, or visibly intoxicated. So that's how we used it as an anchor. And you could do it with a life-saving manual if you've got a case against lifesavers for negligence. You can use it, at, again, in a medical malpractice case, the emergency room protocol, as opposed to what was done. It's a liability anchor, which, I mean, a good anchor on liability. Right. Yeah, I like that. And because I think I thought about that as in sort of a different way in my, in my mind as something that would still sort of set forth maybe like, you know, some best practices or industry standards or something. But I do like the, it's a different way to think about it that, that kind of makes it more um, like other things we do in trial strategy when you think about it as like an anchor and this is the thing that they're comparing everything to. And it's, you know, maybe it works the same, but it feels different to me to think about it like an anchor. Especially helpful, Yvonne, when it's their document that they use. It's not like it is an industry standard, but they used it. Right, right. But they they follow it. Right. Right. And then on top of that, you're the the cross of the corporate representative. Uh, basically, he he said he kind of glanced at it, speed read it, I think is what he said. And then he threw and it. Never took his, it out again. Yeah. To, threw it in his filing cabinet and never looked yeah. at it. Well, no yeah. wonder this happened, right? right. Yeah. Yeah. It, and then and then another piece of evidence that we haven't talked about was this. Uh, the, there was a, an intoxicated woman that was there right before uh, uh, Alex and, and, um, and Alyssa were there. And, you know, when they're saying all these things, like, here's all they do to stop people from drinking, you all had caught, I think, on, on the camera, on the, on the video cameras, that there's this woman who walked in sober, or at least, you know, looking sober, and then uh, basically passed out at, at one of the gambling machines, right? Well, and not just on the camera, and people walked by her, their employees didn't even do anything, they just ignored her, but they created an incident report. And said she was intoxicated. They tried to say, well, maybe it was drugs. Baloney. I mean, and then they were, she got taken to a hospital and there was an ambulance run report about her being intoxicated. So our argument was there was a system failure that night. And this other similar incident helped us prove that. And I developed this model for how you prove system failure. We used it in that case. And this drunk woman incident was powerful evidence. Same night about the same time, same section of the casino. And it allowed me to ask that beverage server, did you serve that woman too? (laughs) What's she going to say? She said she didn't remember anything from the night. Right. She does. Right. That's the thing in the jury's mind that she created that too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So uh, one thing I wanted to add, there's two things I, we haven't talked to you about yet that I want to talk to you about. But the first one was is that, um, so Royal Liquors, I, at least, were they on the verdict form? And, and to remind everybody, Royal Liquors was the, where they had bought the vodka earlier in the day. And it looked, I thought I read somewhere that there was at least a percentage of portioning between Mr. Arango, the casino, and Royal Liquor. But do I understand Rhode Island is a joint and several state? It is. Yes. Okay. So, okay. Okay. 
which is, uh, I mean, great. But but um, was there much of an effort? I mean, I, I assume there was a pretty strong effort by the defense to put this all on Royal Liquors or that, that they got drunk on the um, liquor that was sold at Royal Liquors. Sure. But during the trial, I, I, don't, I don't remember. Obviously, I would never remember this precisely, but um, I don't think I mentioned Royal Liquors after opening statement. Um, and I, but I may have, but if I did, it was passing. I mean, I, I believe the case about what you're focusing on, pretty much all I ever talked about was the, the casino and the people there. And the owner of the liquor store, which was out of business, by the way, at the start of trial, wasn't even in business. Um, he was there for voir dire and might've been there for opening, but he never came back. I was thrilled. I didn't want him in the courtroom. I wanted the jury to see Twin River. That's yeah. it. So sure, and we had a we had a open and shut case against the of uh, the liquor store. They, you know, this woman uh, Christina testified in her deposition that she had been there. I don't know what she said, 60, 80 times in the year or so before when she was seventeen and sixteen. Right. So, I mean, that's why she said, let's go there. I forget the number, but it was some exorbitant number. Um, so I didn't want a verdict against them, you know? So we didn't mention them. Right, right. The The other issue that we ha- we touched on, but we didn't talk about is it, that you said was uh, it, one of the other things that you had to overcome was uh, that Twin River had filed bankruptcy right around the same time that this whole thing happened and tried to discharge at first tried to discharge the whole thing and then you were able to overcome that, but it did limit some of the claims you could bring at trial, right? Sure. Yeah, I couldn't have a punitive damage claim because um, we had to hire a bankruptcy lawyer. I may know a little probate, but I don't know any bankruptcy other than I don't want to be there. Right. And uh, so we had to hire a really good bankruptcy lawyer. He filed this, the motion is like, the, the title of the motion is like 15 lines long. It's like so ridiculous. But basically what we asked was, you know, the, she was in the hospital. This, you know, how could she fight this? You know, it was unfair to discharge her claim when nobody knew about it. And she couldn't go to a lawyer and she was paralyzed trying to live. So uh, we were there for months. Oh, my God. And then finally, we, we won. The judge granted our motion, limited us to the insurance, but there was an enormous insurance. Right. And um, but we couldn't file punitive damage, you know, so it was a negligence claim. And that was OK. I mean, it worked out. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, well, I mean, Mark, this has been just a, a, a great discussion about um, about, you know, uh, sequencing about case framing and about some of the ideas that you have for trial that that uh, worked uh, you know just tremendously well in this case. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that our um, our listeners know about the uh, Moulton versus uh, Twin Rivers or Twin River Casino and Arango case? Um, like may, maybe you know I, I learned more from the mistakes I made than the good things I do. Oh yeah. Um, I don't think. Thank God I've been fortunate to win some good cases, but I don't think I'm as good as my best verdict or as bad as my worst loss. You know, I work hard. 
I think I make up for a lack of talent with passion. I'm very passionate. You know? I, I somehow I don't think that's true, but it, go ahead. But, <laughs> I mean, you are passionate. I'm not saying that. I'm saying. <laughs> Let me, but, I, but if you knew me, you know that I think the greatest trait anybody can have is humility. Um, because I think without humility, you can never really know yourself. You can't know the good. You can't even see the good people around you. And you'll never learn from the mistakes that each one of us will inevitably make. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I really believe that. So when I say I make up for a lack of talent, um, thank you for disagreeing, but I actually feel like that way. Okay? <laughs> um, so here's one thing I learned. Um, Voidet took five, four and a half days, five days. We used the supplemental jury questionnaire, 18 pages long. Uh, we busted. I had so many challenges for cause that I got that we busted a veneer of 65 jurors. We had to go to 90 wow. jurors to get uh, our eight. Uh, ultimately, it was 14 initially and then eight. Um, and on about the second or third day, this woman got called up because somebody else got stricken. And she was a teacher. And uh, her answers seemed like they were good for us on the issues in the questionnaire. And I actually didn't ask her any questions because I was in the third day of voir dire. The judge was getting, uh, he's a fabulous judge, one of the finest judges I've ever been in front of. Uh, you know, he was looking at me and, you know, I could tell it was three days, yeah. right? Not 30 minutes. And, and by the way, he, would, he wasn't a 30 minutes judge, but it was three days. Might have even been the fourth day. I don't remember. And I thought, well, I'm not going to ask her any questions. I'm satisfied with the questionnaire. And it turns out what she didn't reveal was she had a part-time job in a real estate firm. And some of the significant customers of the firm were executives at the casino. And because I foolishly didn't ask any questions, uh, I didn't know that. And I picked up on it pretty soon when, during the trial, she wouldn't look at any of us when we were doing stuff, but she was fixated on the lawyer for the casino in a positive way. And I started getting worried. And that's how I found out about this because we researched it. But I hadn't asked her. So she hadn't not told the truth. Mm. After the verdict, we talked to the jurors. And I remember this one juror who said, I was fighting for $60 million. This one woman wouldn't do it. And uh, it was a compromise verdict. And it was a wonderful verdict, eight figures, but it was a compromise. Yeah. And a lesson I learned is that you <laughs> never don't ask a question of a potential juror who's sitting there. You have got to ask everybody. I knew the demographics, except the way the question was worded and then the form wasn't part-time work. You know? Yeah. yeah. So uh, if I leave you with anything, it's, it's um, I learned that lesson for sure. Yeah. 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 Wow. No, and, and that's, that's important because, you know, we, you know, it, it's, um, you know, voir dire is so important. I mean, uh, I think sometimes it's uh, the most important part of trial. Um, 
because uh, you know, without the right jury and the fairest jury, then um, you you can lose right before you even begin. Right. But, you, can uh, get a, you can get a fair jury if you do a good voir dire. I yeah. thought we had a fair jury other than that. Yeah. At least they talked her into an eight-figure verdict. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. But, exactly. Uh, I guess that that you know we haven't talked about this in your damages. Uh, how did you present damages and did you, were you in, I don't know, in Rhode Island, are you able to suggest a, a specific amount or? Yeah, we did. I, I, I think it was 25 to 35 I recommended. Okay. Um, and we do it all sorts of different ways. Um, we, I, you know, we use a range. I always use a range. Some of my yeah. friends say, no, don't do that. Just say the number. But I'm all about giving the jury choices. Yeah. And I think if you give the jury a good choice, they're almost always going to pick something other than not making the choice. Right. You know? So, um, so that's how I did that. I I happen to agree. I I like doing ranges too. That's, that's how I do almost every one of my closings. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's the way to go. But, um, well, uh, well, Mark, this has been just uh, a, a really good discussion and we've really enjoyed your time and, and uh, thank you for sharing with us. I want to remind everybody that we've been talking with Mark Mandel of, uh, of Mandel Beauclair and Mandel in Providence, Rhode Island, and you can look him up at mbmjustice.com. And we have been talking about uh, the Moulton versus Twin River Casino in the Rango case, which resulted in a $23 million verdict. And I will just encourage everyone who tries cases or or wants to try cases, uh, pick up the book Advanced Case Framing because uh, Mark really goes through uh, the the guts of the trial uh, and really talks about all parts of it and and his um, how he framed it, how he sequenced it, and talks about his theories in um, in how you present a case. And it's uh, it's a, a great read. So uh, so Mark, and if, you, if, and if you need evidence that it works, I feel like this case is a pretty good example yes, to show exactly. you it works. Exactly. <laughs> You're both great. You're both great people. I'm very impressed. Both of you. Well, th- thank you, Mark. We appreciate that. But thank you so much for your time, and um, and we just we uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, my be safe, okay? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the Uh, website. Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial, you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at great trials podcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher who is our uh, 
podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go and Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.